Good morning. I cannot tell you how encouraging it is to see this building filling up more and more each week. We have to put a stop to that. Um, it reminds me of what my grandmother said when I first started preaching. She said, what size is the church where you're going? And I said, it's about 250. And she said, that's a nice size. Maybe you can keep it that way. Her words were prophetic. It was not easy to keep it at that size. <laughs> For those of us who know and love people in Ukraine, this has been a really difficult week. And I know that uh, probably all of you have been offering up your prayers. I hope you have. For our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, uh, I'm not going to take time to give you a report about it other than to tell you that we are in daily contact with them that the people in the churches in Rivna and in Chitomir are well. I will not say they are safe because they're not, uh, but they are well. They are all staying in place as far as we know, not evacuating. Uh, and they so much desire and appreciate our prayers and love you for them. And they tell us that constantly. Uh, I'll be doing a Zoom call with them at 1130 this morning. And so hope this evening to be able to give you uh, a more up-to-date report on how things are going, but uh, God is still in control. They know that. They are walking by faith and uh, approaching this whole situation with great faith. So let's just continue to hold them up with our prayers. I want to call your attention again to the text that has served as the foundation for our series on loving the right things. It is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And I hope you'll look carefully at it, and then later that you'll look carefully with me at Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. But here's what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. In a climate such as that which Paul describes, one of the first casualties is Christian families. It becomes harder and harder every day for our families to be strong and to be strong in the Lord because everything about our culture seems to be trying to destroy family life. This is happening even as we meet here today. There's everything going on around us from same-sex marriages to pornography to self-centeredness to distorted educational goals to social movements that actually despise the concept of family life. It's all out there, and it's all seeking to destroy our families. And why? All because people love the wrong things. They love the wrong things. And that's why we're talking about loving the right things. So one of the right things that we need to be certain that we are doing 
is to love one another in our families. Now, there are three facts that I want you to keep in mind as we approach this subject. Number one, nobody has a perfect family. Nobody has a perfect family. We all want perfect families. We would all love to have perfect families, but nobody has a perfect family. Sometimes when we realize the imperfections in our families, we begin to feel deficient, but nobody has a perfect family. The reason we don't is because families, last time I checked, are populated by people. And people are never perfect. And so we have imperfect people trying to relate to imperfect people. That's what family life is. If you want to see the truth of that, think about some of the families we read about in the Bible. In fact, think about most of the families we read about in the Bible, if not all of them. Uh, starting with the first one, Adam and Eve. She led the way into sin, and Adam turned around and blamed her because he joined her in it. Then one of their sons murdered the other one. Noah saved his family by getting them all on the ark, but then after they were off the ark, he got drunk and some things happened that I'm not even going to talk about. They were so disgraceful. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham lied to his wife, or lied about his wife being his sister. Now there's a formula for a strong marriage. Don't lie about your wife not being your wife. And at Sarah's suggestion, he took another wife. And then when she became jealous, he, she wanted that wife thrown out, and Abraham threw her out. And then the two sons that were born of the two women became at odds with one another and have been from then on. This was family life. Abraham's grandsons, Jacob and Esau, came out of the womb competing with one another and never did learn to fully accept each other. I could go on and on, but you get the idea. Families are never perfect. So our challenge is to learn to live with one another in love, imperfect people loving imperfect people. Now, the thing is, we can do that, but we have to work at it. We have to work at it. Fact number two that I want you to keep in mind is that every family will be tested in one way or another. Because your family is tested and goes through hard times doesn't mean there's something wrong with your family. What it means is, is that the, the ruler of this world, Satan, the Bible talks about, that we've been studying on Wednesday nights, does not want you to have a strong family. He wants to tear your family apart. And so you're going to go through some kind of testing, some kind of trials, whether it's illness or financial hardship or addictions or marital unfaithfulness or rebellious children or whatever. You're going to go through something. And on top of all that, we're living in a world that doesn't do anything to help us. We're living in a world that is rife with materialism, and with selfishness and with temptation and all the things that Paul described in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In fact, I challenge you to think of one single aspect of contemporary life that helps you with your family. It's just not out there. The society that we're living in is trying to destroy our families. Satan does not want you to have a strong family. But here's the other side of that. In fact, number three, God does. God wants you to have a strong family. And there's ample teaching in his word about how to do that. But we have to follow that teaching. We have to discipline ourselves so that we want what God wants for us and we cooperate with him in building it. How does God help us have strong families? Remember the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talked about in, in Romans? About love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Could anybody use that, more of that in your families? 
when we develop those qualities, we let the Spirit bear His fruit in our lives, our families are going to be better. They're going to be stronger. So the stronger we are in the Lord, the stronger we're going to be in our families. So keep those three things in mind. Now, I want you to go with me to Ephesians 5, 21 to 23, and I do hope you'll have the text open in front of you as we talk about this, because this is Paul's most extensive instruction about family life. And before we get into that text and what it says, I want to point out three errors that we frequently make that keep us from understanding Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Error number one is that we read Ephesians 5 as though the purpose of it is to establish a pecking order. Now, some of you are thinking, what's a pecking order? Those of you who grew up on a farm around chickens know what is a pecking order. All right? In a barnyard full of, of uh, chickens that are confined, there is a pecking order. Every chicken knows its place in the order. And the top chicken pecks on the others in the tops of their head to make them know that. When I was a kid, we had two parakeets. Don't ask me why, but we did. We had two parakeets. One of them nearly killed the other one, establishing and supporting the pecking order. Pecked that poor little thing on the head all the time until it had no feathers left on the top of its head. That's a pecking order. Some folks read Ephesians 5 as though the purpose of it is to establish a pecking order about who's got uh, the clout in the family, who pecks on who, who runs the show, and, and so forth. That's error number one, because that's not what it's about. Nothing in this text suggests that. Number two... Second error that we make is we don't read our own mail. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that when we read this, we say, well, okay, that's the, that's the scripture that says I'm the boss. Or that's the scripture that says you've got to love me. That's the scripture that says, you know, and on and on. And we start looking at one another. We're reading other people's mail. Read your own mail. See what God is saying to you and put that into practice in your life. And then the third mistake we make is we start reading at verse 22, where Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, and we ought to read, start the reading at verse 21, where in verse 21 he says, submit to one another. You get that? To one another, before he ever says anything about individual responsibilities. The English Standard Version says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The NIV says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You go up to verse 15. That's why we had that reading before at the beginning of the service. You go up to verse 15, and Paul says, look careful then, carefully then how you walk. In verse 17, he begins to give a sequence of instructions about how to be filled with the Spirit. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, and, and then giving thanks always, and then submitting to one another. So this is a sequence of things that we are all to do, every one of us. So when he says submitting to one another, he establishes a principle of mutual submission. Let me tell you what submitting to one another in the family means, or in the church or anywhere else. To submit means to give to the other person what they most need from you, whether it is what's easiest for you or not. I'm going to say that again. It means submitting to one another. It means giving to the other person what they most need from you, whether it's what's easiest for you or not. 
That's what Paul lays out in the following verses. And he's, notice he says it's not the responsibility of one person. It is the responsibility of all. We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So having established that principle of mutual submission then, Paul begins to speak to individual members of the Christian household. And so we come to verse 22 where he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And the first question that kind of come to our minds is why? Why are wives supposed to submit to her husbands? Because that's what he most needs from you. That's what he most needs from you is a recognition of his headship in the home. Notice Paul makes it very clear the husband's leadership, headship is analogous to that of Christ and the church. God made your husband the head of your family. And in that role, in order to fulfill that role, he needs your cooperation. He needs your participation. Now, head doesn't necessarily mean what we sometimes think it means. Most of the time I've heard people say, oh, that means that when there's a decision to be made and there's a disagreement, he gets his way. That's not in the Greek. I don't think that's even in the Syrophoenician. <laughs> the text doesn't talk about that. It doesn't say anything about that. I was in a Bible class one time. We had 50 men in there, 50 Christian men. We broke them up into groups of five, 10 at a table. We told them to read this text together for 15 minutes, and then we're going to talk about what it says. Every single table came back and said the same thing. Every single table came back and said, it means that when there's a disagreement, the husband gets the last say. Then we said, okay, where does it say that exactly? 10 more minutes on that. After 10 minutes, they're sitting there scratching their heads, and they came back, and they all said the same thing. It doesn't say that. I said, then what made you think that's what it was about if it doesn't say that? We've read that in the text for far too long. It does not say that. It's not about that. Because then look what Paul says. Uh, does not necessarily mean he's the decision maker, but as Christ is the head of the church, why? Because he's its savior. He's the savior of the church, and he gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for her. That's what gives a husband headship. God's decree and the fact that he gives himself up for her. How do we recognize the headship of Christ? We don't cower under his leadership. We long for his leadership, don't we? We love his leadership. We're grateful for his leadership. We welcome it. So as the church submits to Christ, wives should submit to their husbands. Wives, I want to tell you something this morning. You may not know about your husband, but you need to. Okay, this is inside information. I'm only telling a couple hundred of my best friends here. Something you need to know about your husband. Men always struggle with a sense of inadequacy. And you may be thinking, not my husband, because he thinks he's the king of the world. <laughs> you know why he does that? Because he's struggling with a sense of inadequacy. He's struggling with a sense of inadequacy. Men always do. Every boy, every young man grows up with this struggle. Am I adequate? Am I competent? Can I make the team? Can I make my grades? Can I make a living? 
Can I take care of my family? Can I please my wife? Can I please anybody? That is the great struggle with which men live. And if you as a wife want to help them in that, you give them the assurance that you acknowledge their headship. They don't have to prove anything to you. It's an act of grace on your part. He doesn't have to prove to you that he's the head of the family. You give him that. You acknowledge that. And that takes away that sense of struggle when you do that act of grace. What does he say then to husbands, verses 25 to 33? I want you to notice, first of all, how much more he says to the men than he does to the women. I pointed that out to a lot of men, you know, who kind of crow over this passage and say, yeah, you know, the Bible says my wife's got to submit to me. And I said, let's read your part. <laughs> let's read your part. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might cleanse her by the washing of water with the word that he might cleanse her and bring her to himself present her to himself like a bride without spot or blemish if wives are going to submit to their husbands make themselves vulnerable in that way then husbands must give their wives what they most need love and protection and love her how like Christ loved the church. Fellas, our role as husbands is to emulate the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. That's it. That's our role. To be giving of ourselves for the love and the good of our wives. Just as Jesus did for the church, that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In the same way, Paul says, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now, most of us take pretty good care of our bodies. Yeah, I know we don't eat the right stuff, but, you know, most of, we make sure we eat, right? We try to get adequate rest. We try to get adequate food. You know, we, 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 try, to, we try to make ourselves look really good. Well, we do our best. We do our best on that, all right? We take pretty good care of our bodies. And so Paul says, so let the husband nourish and cherish his wife as he does his own body. Take, take care of her as you take care of yourself. See, once again, you're not putting self above her. You're loving her and providing for her. The pattern for this, Paul says, is Genesis 2 and verse 24. The scripture said, this is the foundational text in the Bible about marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the original plan. And notice what Paul says about that. He says the two become one flesh, which is a profound mystery. You ought to get the commentaries on Genesis sometimes and read a bunch of them and see the discussion about that. It is a profound mystery. It is a profound mystery how a man and a woman become one flesh, joined together in marriage. But Paul says that accurately describes the relationship between Christ and the church, that love-submission relationship that is so precious to us. 
And that gives us an idea of how important a strong marriage is. It's to be like the unity between Christ and the church. So here's the summary he gives in verse 33 to husbands and wives. Let each of you, husbands, love your wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's not rocket science, but it is a challenge. It's what we need to do. Then you get to chapter 6 and verse 1, and he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord. First question comes up again, why? And Paul answers it, because what? This is, anybody looking at it? This is right. All right, because this is right. This is what God wants. This is what God says. It's God's plan for the family, parents who love each other and children who respect their parents. Now, verse 2, he quotes the fifth of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land. This is the first commandment, first of the ten, that had a promise attached to it. The promise is so that you may live long in the land. We read that sometimes and think, oh, uh, if children are obedient to their parents, they'll live to a ripe old age. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is God is saying to Israel, if children obey your parents, then you're going to have strong families and you're going to have a strong society and you'll survive in the land to which you're going. You will survive because society will survive. It's the same way now. The society will survive if families are strong. and family, But families won't be strong unless children are honoring their parents. Parents and young folks, I want you to think about this. You have a tremendous influence not only on the health of your family, but on the health of the society in which you live. You make it stronger by showing respect and obedience to your parents. Remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that one of the marks of the last days of troublesome times is that people would be disobedient to their parents? Why? Why does he mention that out of all things? Because when that doesn't happen, there's just a crumbling of the foundation and the family starts to crumble. And when the family starts to crumble, the society starts to crumble. And I don't need to prove that to you. Just look around. Just look around. Children have a tremendous role to play in strengthening the family and in strengthening the society. But then he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents have to walk a fine line. And by the way, I think fathers here represents parents. I don't think he's exclusively laying this responsibility on dads. Sometimes in scripture, the word fathers is used to mean both parents. But parents have to walk a fine line between two extremes. One extreme is over-disciplining your children, being harsh with them, provoking them to anger so that they build up resentment and thinking that you can force them to be respectful or you can force them to do whatever it is that you want them to do. And as a result, their development is hindered and even worse. They may become completely rebellious. That's one extreme. The other extreme is failing to discipline them at all. That's the other extreme. Especially do we need, Paul says, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I want you to listen to me. I would to God that all of our parents in the church 
were as diligent about seeing that your children study the scripture and get to worship and to Bible study as you are about seeing that they do their homework and get to school. Don't think they don't see what you think is most important. Don't think they don't pick up on that. You don't have to verbalize it. You're telling them that by your actions. You're saying it is absolutely crucial for you to do your homework and get your school. If you can squeeze in a few Bible verses and get to church once a week, good for you. If you think your family will survive strong in that way, you're kidding yourself. You're just kidding yourself. It will not work that way. You need to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Paul says. That involves not only teaching them, it involves inculcating godly principles. It involves setting a godly example in your own life so that they see in you what you want them to be and what God wants them to be. Equip them with what they need. We're sometimes so diligent to want to equip them with what they need to be able to make a living, but we don't equip them with what they need to have eternal life. And that's what we need to be doing. There's great paradox involved in family life. Our families can be the source of our greatest joys in life. And our families can be the source of our greatest heartaches. And it mostly depends on whether or not we're willing to follow the instructions that Paul is giving right here in Ephesians 5. That's the difference. Whether or not we pay attention to our individual God-given responsibilities to love one another and our families to submit to one another, as Paul says, to gladly give to each other what it is that the other most needs from us, whether it's easy or whether it's not. And I know the question that always comes up when we talk about this subject is what if my husband won't do what Paul says? What if he won't love me as Christ loved the church? What if my wife will not submit to me as to the Lord? What if my parents will not or did not bring me up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? What if my children are rebellious and will not be obedient? Let me tell you, there's probably not a whole lot you can do about that. But you will not make it better by abandoning your own responsibility. You will not make it better by not reading your own mail. Read your own mail. Do what God would have you to do. And if you want to do the one thing that will do the most to strengthen your family, have it be united in Christ. And if you are not yet in Christ, then you have not yet done what you need to do to strengthen your family. You need to do that. You need to trust in Christ and be baptized in him. You may be the missing link that is keeping your family from being a totally Christian family. Not a perfect family, because Christian families aren't more perfect than other families, but a stronger family, a family stronger in the Lord, a family that will please God, a family that will strengthen each other, strengthen the society in which you live, and a family that will bring honor to the Lord. If you've been holding out and you're, not the, you're the one who hasn't yet given that faith and that obedience, please do it right away. You can do it now while we stand and sing. Yeah.